to Exodus chapter, 20, chapter 2, verses 23. We're going to be reading right through to the end of chapter 3, so it is quite a long reading, so buckle up. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you 
and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that brings life to our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would sanctify us through it, and that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a reason why parents take time to name their children. Because names are hugely significant. They form part of, of our identities, our, our names, we, we hear them almost hundreds of times every day. And so any parent desires a name that uh, they, they will give to their child that is not only going to sound good, okay, they're not going to get teased because of their name, it's going to be a nice name, but also that it should hold some special meaning. And so in a, in a way, our names shape us. They, they tell others something about ourselves and reveal something perhaps of our character and perhaps even something regarding our, our destiny. Now, throughout the Bible, we see just how significant names are and how much they are tied to one's character and, and purpose. I mean, just consider a few biblical names here. Noah, which is from the Hebrew word for rest. Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude. Moses, as we saw the other week, means the one who, who draws out, the one who will deliver. Um, Joshua, God saves. Elijah, God is the Lord. And those are just a few. You can look at most biblical characters and they all have um, some significance um, to their names that is worked out then in their lives. Now, if names hold such significance for us and also for, for these Bible characters um, in revealing something of our purpose and, and character, well, how much more important is it regarding God's own name? And so in this morning's text, we here for the very first time in the biblical narrative that God reveals his own name to man. And in doing so, God reveals some very important things concerning his character. 
as the holy and the eternal God, the, the great I am. And so what we're going to see in this text is that because God is the holy and the great I am, the eternal one, it is he alone who is worthy and deserving of our worship. So there are three points here. God is holy, God is who God is, and I see Jesus, the holy and eternal great I am. So firstly, God is holy. So last week we heard as Brendan preached to us that uh, Moses killed an Egyptian while he was still in Egypt. And then because of that crime, he had to flee to the land of Midian and, and hide out as a result. And while he's living in the land of Midian, he uh, marries Jethro's daughter um, called Zipporah, and they have a son called Gershom. Our passage starts off at the end of chapter 2 and verse 23, where it tells us that uh, Pharaoh has died, is now a new Pharaoh in, in the land of Egypt, and the people of Israel, so they've, been crying, they've been crying out to God to deliver them from bondage and slavery in, in Egypt. And uh, verse 24 continues. And says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So for years, the people of God have been suffering under the yoke of Egyptian oppression, of slavery. They've been praying for years for God to answer their prayer and deliver them and, and bring them into um, the, the promised land as he promised Abraham generations ago. And finally, after years of being on their knees, eventually we see here that God, it tells us that God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham to bring his descendants into the promised land. And so we see here that now God has seen the plight of his people. He knows their pain and their anguish. And now he is going to answer their prayer for help. And so chapter 3 opens up with Moses, who's keeping watch over the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. He's led the flocks westward out of the land of Midian. Okay, Midian is the, in the modern-day country of Saudi Arabia. And so he leads the flocks into what we call today the Sinai Peninsula, and there he comes to a mountain called Horeb, or mountain is also called Mount Sinai. And the verse one calls this mountain the mountain of God. And on that mountain, as Moses is in the desert, an angel of the Lord appears to him in the in a flame of fire out of the bush. But the bush itself is not consumed by this fire. And God himself then calls out, calls out Moses from out of the bush and commands him that he should not come near, but that he should take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Then God reveals himself to Moses as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses, in response, he, he hides his face and he's afraid to look at God. So what is going on here? Well, I think firstly, let's focus on the 
nature of the identity of this angel of the Lord who appears in the burning bush. Now, angel in Hebrew just means messenger. So this angel or this messenger of the Lord, if, we, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, he appears in many places across the Old Testament. Is this, this angel of the Lord that appeared to Abraham in Genesis 22. He's the same angel of the Lord that wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. He's the one that appeared to Balaam in Numbers 22. He's the one that appeared to Joshua in Joshua 5, to Gideon in Judges 6. And those are just a few times. Now, the angel of the Lord, we must understand, is no ordinary angel. He's unlike, for example, the angel Gabriel or the angels that appeared to the shepherds on, the, the, on Christmas Eve. Because here in Genesis 3, the angel of the Lord appears in the flames of fire in the bush. Now, fire across the biblical narrative is often associated with the presence of God himself. Now, think of Genesis 15, verse 17, when God is, makes a covenant with Abraham and um, he commands Abraham to, to slaughter all sorts of animals in half. And instead of Abraham walking through the broken pieces of animal to ratify the covenant, it's God himself who walks through the, those animals in the form of a flaming torch. Okay, also think of the, the, flaming, the flame of fire that led the people of God out of Egypt by night. Yeah, it was a, a, a sign of the presence of God. Fire in both instances being indicating to us the presence of God. So when the angel speaks to Moses out of the flames, you'll notice almost immediately it tells us that it's God speaking. At verse, verse 4, it says, God himself was the one who called out to Moses. So it's clear to us here that, well, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, angel of the Lord is God. Okay, the angel is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And, and we call this a, a theophany. And they as I said before, there are many instances of, the, of theophanies appearing throughout the Old Testament. Think of Daniel 2, who appears with, in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's the fourth figure, like the Son of Man. So this, this uh, uh, visible manifestation of the invisible God occurs numerous times in the Old Testament. Here's one example of it. Now, the second thing that we see here is that God warns Moses in verse 5 not to come near him. Now, you maybe read, heard that and you're thinking, you know, well, yeah, God appears. You'd think, you know, why doesn't he say something like, oh, come to me, my beautiful child. Come sit on my lap. Now, much of our church culture in recent times has stressed an over-familiarity with God. That Jesus is seen more like a, our chummy than, and that we can approach God in, in even sort of casual and, and perhaps even flippant manners. 
Now, what we see here is the God of the Bible warns Moses not to get too close and to take off his shoes as a sign of respect. Now, isn't this strange? Well, not at all. We see he has revealed something about the holiness of God. And this is an attribute of God that reveals to us that he is utterly other than us. That he's altogether pure and distinct from his creation. And the God's manifestation in the form here of fire is a revelation of God's holiness. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So our God, who's holy, who's a consuming fire, who's a jealous God, he cannot stand sin in his holy presence. And this is precisely why Moses was not permitted to get too close to God. He was a sinful man before a holy God, and God would have been just to destroy him then and there by his fiery wrath. Instead, it was was the only appropriate response of Moses was to keep his distance. And as verse 6 says, to hide his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So bring us to our second point. God is who God is from verse 7. So now that Moses is before the Lord, the Lord proceeds to tell Moses that he's heard the cry of his people of Israel, of their oppression in Egypt, and he's now ready at long last, after many years, to, as verse 8 says, to come down and deliver them. And how exactly is he going to do so? Well, the answer lies in verse 10, where God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So how is God going to rescue his people? Well, Moses, you're going to do it. Now, understandably, Moses is absolutely horrified. In verse 11, he exclaims, well, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? But you see, what Moses doesn't realize is that the Lord has been preparing him for this very task since his birth. You remember from two weeks ago. He grew up a Hebrew, got to spend his early years with his mom, so he was shaped in the faith of the God of Israel, the true faith. And then he grew up in Pharaoh's household because Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And he got to know the ways of the Egyptians and was educated in their education system and understood how their diplomacy works and all the arts of the Egyptians. So God has uniquely prepared this guy for the task. But he still feels inadequate and weak to it. But God isn't just about to chuck him out there to... Be the savior of Israel all on on his lonesome. Of course not. He promises him in verse 12. He says, I will be with you. 
And so here, what God does is that he reaffirms the wonderful, comforting promise of the covenant of grace that he has made with his forefather, Abraham. And that part of that incredible promise of the covenant of grace, which God still speaks to us today, is that he will be our God and we will be his people. And he essentially affirms that promise there to, to Moses, that um, he reminds Moses that he belongs to him, that he will be with him, and that as part of his chosen people, as a part of Israel, he's not going to leave them nor forsake them. Then God also promises that he will provide a sign for Moses that he has been sent from God. So the sign is that once he has brought Israel out of Egypt, they will come and worship him and serve him on that very same mountain, upon Mount Sinai, upon Horeb. And so what we see here, this little glimpse into the future of how where Exodus is going here, is that the purpose, the result of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt is that they will worship their God. That God will save them in order to worship him. And this is the main, one of the main themes that runs through Exodus. Now verse 13 continues, and here Moses wants to know from God what his name is. You just think about it. He, he thinks he's going to return back to Egypt and he's going to you know, tell his, the Israelites, hey, I was in the desert and uh, I was thirsty and it was like 50 degrees. And I was, then suddenly uh, there was a, a bush that was on fire, but it didn't actually burn up. And then a voice came out of the bush and, and, and you know, he, he realizes he's going to need some sort of verification. That there's a chance that the Israelites are not just going to, to believe his story. And so God responds in verse 14. and says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what is the significance of this? Well, it's highly significant. Um, this is the first time in Scripture where God reveals his personal name to man. Now, before this point in redemptive history, God has only revealed himself by the generic terms of God, or the, the Hebrew is Elohim, and master or, or Lord, which it would be the Lord in lowercase in English translation. The Hebrew there behind that is Adonai. Now, those terms are not used uniquely by the God of Israel. I mean, even Baal is one of the Elohim. Even Molech is an is a, is a Elohim, Okay. They, even the, these terms are used even by the pagan idols. And what we have here instead is a revelation of God's unique, his personal name that he shares with no one else. And so God's personal name reveals some significant things concerning his character. So God chooses to reveal himself as I am who I am. 
Now, we must understand, only the true God could possibly reveal himself in this manner. Well, why is that? Well, who is God? Hey, God is, is not of this creation. He's not the sun God or the, the moon God or the, the river God as the pagans understand the divine. He's not within, contained within the creation. He's not this divine energy that is among us. He's entirely other. He cannot be fully comprehended, nor can he be completely described. For if he could, if you could nail down exactly God as he is, well, then he would cease to be God. Instead, God is who God is. He's God. He's nothing more, he's nothing less. That's why he calls himself, I am who I am. And verse 15, you see in your English Bibles, it uses the term the Lord, which is capitalized. I don't think it's capitalized in the, the, the worship guide there. So if you've got your Bibles, open up and it will be. Now, every time you see the Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, the Hebrew behind that is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the derivative of the Hebrew verb to be, which God has. So it's the same verb that God has just revealed himself as I am who I am. It's clearer in the Hebrew because it's the same, it's more, it's the same word being repeated um, here, basically. So um, when God says in verse 14, I am who I am, then verse 15, he calls himself the Lord, Yahweh. He's saying, I am He's repeat, he's reinforcing the truth of his name as I am who I am. So every time that is the Lord is repeated in capital letters in your Bibles, Old Testaments, you're seeing Yahweh, you're seeing I am. So God's revelation of himself as I am who I am, as Yahweh, it points to his eternal, unchanging being. Now, the, the, the form that the the Hebrew verb to be is used in verse 14 is, is an imperfect form. And what that means, there's a bit of flexibility in how we can read Hebrew in this way. In other words, it's possible to translate God's name also as I will be who I will be. So what it's telling us about God is that God is the one who has always been. He's the one who is. He's the one who always will be. He has no beginning and no end. He's uncreated. There's never a moment when God was not. Before the creation came into existence, there was God. He's the one who is before all ages. Now, God being I am who I am also reveals to us that unlike everything around us, God is distinct from his creation. Okay, he's, he's unchanging. He is the creator and we are his creation. He's unchanging. God doesn't evolve. He's not becoming anything. He doesn't grow in his wisdom or grow in his strength and grow in his power or get wiser or become anything more than he already is. 
He simply is. Okay, he's perfection within himself. Okay, if it was possible for him to get wiser, well, then it would mean he's imperfect because he's still got to grow in certain areas. But no, the God's not like that. He's perfect as he is. He's entirely self-sufficient and complete. He cannot be bettered because he's simply God. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need any help to do his work. And because of this, he's completely able to sustain the universe infinitely and do, do as he pleases according to his sovereign will. He's not restricted by anything or anyone outside of himself. And so what this means for us, is deep implications for us, is that we have a God who is ever faithful who is always trustworthy, who is all-powerful, who will always achieve his good plans and his will, who is true to his word, who, and who loves us not in some way that he, he needs to get anything out of us. He doesn't need our companion, but instead he loves us with a perfect love that is because his love is complete within himself. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, in paragraph 2, describes these truths about God in a wonderful way. And this is what the confession says. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. So now verse 16 carries on, and then there we see God instructing Moses to gather the elders of Israel to go to Pharaoh. So a very important thing we see is that the Israelites were Presbyterians too. They had a session, they had their elders, and they did all things in an orderly manner, and they didn't have one chief guy who was calling the shots, they had consulted as an eldership. Now, I'm doing it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but there's a truth here, is that the, the, the existence of elders in the New Testament is not a novel thing in the Bible. Okay? The God's Old Testament church, Israel, also had the office of elders. And so Moses and the elders of Israel are to go to Pharaoh and tell him that they've got to allow the Israelites to, to go into the wilderness for three days in order to worship God. And so what we see here is, is, is a preview of what's coming in the weeks and months, that God is going to deliver Israel out of slavery, not for their own good pleasure. Okay, the freedom from slavery was, was never going to be an end in itself. Instead, God is going to save them in order that they worship him alone as the only true God as the holy God, the eternal God, the great I am. 
So let's bring us to our final point. Jesus, the holy, eternal, great I am. Now, ultimately, in, in the fullness of time, God's revelation of himself culminates in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the word made flesh. And this text in Exodus 3 points us to and reveals Christ in some very important ways. So let's just look at, at two of them. Firstly, well, it is Jesus who is the Holy One in the fire, in the burning bush. Now we see that Moses experienced this theophany in the burning bush, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Well, who else can this be but the pre-incarnate Son of God? The angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, as Colossians 2 verse 9 says. He is the Holy One of Israel who will, as 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says, will return in flaming fire. So it is Jesus who is in the flames of the burning bush. Secondly, Jesus is the eternal great I am. Now in many places, and especially in, in John's gospel, Jesus reveals himself through a series of these I am statements. For example, he, he, will, he says that I am the bread of life. I am the living waters. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And what Jesus is doing in those instances is that he's deliberately making use of the same phrase that's used here in Hebrews 3, no, Exodus 3:14, where God reveals himself as I am who I am. And perhaps the most explicit place where Jesus does this is in John 8:58, in response to the Pharisees who, who are questioning concerning his identity, Jesus Responds and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so, what Jesus is doing here is that he's unapologetically stating that he is Yahweh, that he is the eternal great I am who was even before Abraham. And the Pharisees are under no illusions as to what Jesus is saying because the next verse, John 8, 59, what does that tell us? Well, they pick up stones to stone him because they know exactly what he has just claimed. He has claimed to be Yahweh and the penalty in the Old Testament for, for claiming to be Yahweh when one is not, for blaspheming the name of the Lord as they believed he was doing, was that he needed to be stoned to death. So in Jesus, the God of Israel, the eternal, the great I am, Yahweh himself is revealed. And this is precisely why in Revelation 1 verse 8, Jesus declares of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, brothers and sisters, the only appropriate response to Jesus, how the Bible has revealed him, is not to merely admire him as some wise teacher, as some sort of spiritual guru, as some sort of prophet from an, of old. The only appropriate response to the biblical Jesus is to fall on your knees and worship him for he is the true and only King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the eternal one. He is the holy one of Israel who created the heavens and the earth. He is Yahweh himself, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So let's bring things to a close here. Now you'll remember that Moses was forbidden to draw near to God when he appeared to him in the burning bush. Maybe that, that unsettled you a bit. Yeah, Moses had to keep his distance and he had to hide his face. He was afraid to look at God. And the reason for this is that God is holy and Moses was a sinner. And you know what? It's, it's the same with us. Yeah, we think, we may think we've done enough good things to make us right with God. We've lived a moral life. We think we're okay with God, that God gets us, that he's our buddy, yeah, that he, he'll, 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 he'll understand, yeah, and it'll be all right. Well, the reality is that if we were to come into God's unmediated presence, he would justly strike us down by his wrath, as we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how so? Well, just this week, there's not one of us sitting here who has properly worshipped him as he commands us in the first command. We've all failed to worship him with our whole hearts. And instead, we've constantly created idols in our hearts, and we've worshipped those idols instead of the true God. We've blasphemed the name of the Lord in our, with our lives. We've, we've even murdered other people through the thoughts of our hearts and hating others. We've even committed adultery through the lusts and fantasies going around in our minds. And so whether we like it or not, no one can escape this truth. As Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. Because of that, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So therefore, God is just. He would be just to strike us down in his wrath. But you may be thinking, well, although Moses kept his distance to God, he wasn't struck down. Why was that? Well, Moses... Trusted in the pre-incarnate Christ. Because only Jesus is the truly righteous and holy one. And he's righteous and holy precisely because he has kept every letter of the law. He has obeyed the law of God to its perfection through his act of obedience while he was here on earth. 
Not only did he keep the whole law, but Jesus died on the cross, himself facing the wrath of God that was due for, to us in order to take away our sin and to count his perfect righteousness to you. And Colossians 1.22 says that you are now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, while Moses only glimpsed upon Christ from afar, as Hebrews 11 tells us, in, in types and shadows, we, on this side of the cross and in the new covenant, we see Christ in all his fullness. And now, clothed in, in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, we do not need to keep our distance from God and look away from him as Moses did. But instead, because of the shed blood of Jesus, we are called to draw near to him, as Hebrews 10 says, with confidence, because he has made a new and living way for us to enter his presence through his blood. So brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy, the eternal, the great I am, who lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved so that you can with confidence draw near to God because he has wiped your sins away and he has counted to you his righteousness. Trust in him who's unchanging, who's eternal, who's ever faithful and will finish the work that he started in you and trust him who has saved you from destruction and wrath, has delivered you into a new promised land in order to worship him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. Amen. Let's pray.